Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. Today I'm out on the road again, and this time I've headed east to bury St. Edmund's to visit the Abbey here and learn more about its remarkable medieval history. This Abbey was one of the richest and most powerful Benedictine monasteries in all of England. It was a hugely important site of pilgrimage and has some quite surprising stories attached to it. I've been lucky enough to get a tour with someone who knows an awful lot about the site, Adrian Tyndall, who has a background as an archaeologist and is now the chair of the Bury St Edmunds Association of Registered Tour Guides. And he's also the acting chair of Abbey of St Edmund Heritage Partnership Research Group. So I don't think there's much that Adrian doesn't know about this abbey. Some of the eager listeners may remember a bit about Bury St Edmunds from a previous episode, one with Dr. Francis Young on St. Edmund himself, and also the Abbey and Edmund cropped up in a crossover episode I recorded with Dan Snow over on Dan Snow's History Hit a little while ago, when we went in search for the Viking Great Army across the country. So when you've listened to this, do search out those two to find more about the Viking link especially, and the possibility that St. Edmund, whose bones are now lost, may well be buried here. But today it's all about the Abbey, so do come along for a tour. Just to let you know, it's quite a busy town, so there'll be a bit of road noise once I get out of my car, but I'm sure Adrian will guide us all through it very well. Okay, Adrian, so thank you so much for meeting me here today. It's a pleasure. So welcome to Bury St Edmunds. Thank you. So we're now standing right really in the centre of town, aren't we? And explain to our listeners what we are looking at right now. We are standing in the middle of town. We're standing on Angel Hill, which is one of the main open spaces in the middle of town. And what we're looking at is the famous Abbey Gate. And the Abbey Gate is one of the most iconic remains of the Benedictine Abbey of St Edmund, which celebrated its millennium last year. It was founded in 1020, and we've got a whole series of events to celebrate that occasion, which are now taking place this year. So the Abbey Gate itself, people look at it and regard it as perhaps one of the original features of the Abbey, but in fact it was a replacement, a late replacement, because originally there was another gate to the left of the one we see now, and that was destroyed by the townspeople in about 1327, because 
When the Benedictine Abbey was established, it was essentially to guard the mortal remains of St Edmund. And that brought pilgrims from all over England, from all over Europe, to worship, to pray at the Shrine of Edmund. And of course there needed to be a grand gateway for them to come through. And there were in fact two into the Abbey. There was one which is known as the Norman Tower, which is a Romanesque gate and still survives. And then there's this one, the Abbey Gate. Now, originally, that was a twin. There were two towers. The Romanesque tower was destroyed by the townsfolk, as I say. Periodically, they would rebel, rise up against the power of the abbey. The abbey was all-powerful in West Suffolk. It controlled the whole of West Suffolk. It had what was known as the Liberty of St Edmund, which gave them effectively royal powers. The king ceded power to them, and they were able to charge taxes and rents on all the people hereabouts not only in the town but in the whole of West Suffolk so of course there was a huge amount of resentment against the power of the abbey and periodically there would be outbreaks of violence and in 1327 there was a particularly violent uprising and the townsfolk came down and destroyed the original gateway down here and order was restored soldiers were brought in arrests were made and a new tower was built, but unlike the original one, which was Romanesque, dating through the 12th century, this is in Gothic decorated style, which is far more ornate than the original. But you can see, if you look closely, it's almost like a castle gateway, a castle barbican. It's got a portcullis, it's got arrow slits and a crossbow slit up at the top. So it was really ready for action at any stage. And there was a garrison of some 30 soldiers stationed in the Abbey Gate to protect the abbot and his possessions from any further rebellion by the townsfolk. So it's an indication of, although it was hugely wealthy and powerful and drew all these people to its gates, it was actually locally quite unpopular with the townsfolk. There was a lot of tension. And the Abbey continued for some 500 years and it was one of the most powerful and most influential and wealthiest Benedictine abbeys in the country. And of course, Edmund was the star attraction. People, because of the Shrine of Edmund, that's why people came here. And until his star was eclipsed by Thomas a Becket, the shrine down in Canterbury, he continued to attract visitors from all over the country and beyond. And the abbey continued to be powerful for some 500 years. And in 1539, Henry VIII and his commissioners decided to dissolve the abbey, as they did with most monasteries and priories and abbeys up and down the country. And they came, they descended on the abbey. They took all its wealth, they took many of its books, they destroyed the shrine, they threw the monks out onto the streets, as it were. And if you look at the abbey gate, you can see a number of empty alcoves in the facade and almost certainly at that time those would have held sacred images which were also taken. When we go and look at the ruins of the abbey we'll also see that they caused huge damage by demolishing the fine buildings that were once there, taking away all the facing stones. But we'll go and have a look at those in a little while. Yeah, have a look and see what's actually left. Maybe we should get out of this traffic and into the calm inside the gates. Oh, right, OK, so we've come inside, we've come through the gate. 
And so we're looking at the remains of the gates then now, are we? We are. We're looking at the inside of the Abbey Gate. And the first thing that strikes you is you look up on the wall and there's a fireplace halfway up the wall. And of course that indicates that that's where there was originally a timber floor, a wooden floor, and the garrison who guarded the gate would have been up there. But below that, the whole of the interior of the gate is decorated in really fine, beautiful style with wonderful roof vaulting decorating the walls but they've been destroyed of course we assume when the abbey was dissolved the vaulting was taken away chipped down and taken away and presumably disposed of elsewhere so it's a rather sad sight to see what remains of this fine masonry that was once here you can also see along one side there are a series of stone benches and those would have been for visitors to the abbey those who had business to do with the abbey because this was essentially the abbey gate was almost if you like the tradesman's entrance it wasn't where the pilgrims came it was people who had business to do with the abbey and so also if you were poor and on the street you would also have come here to get the arms that were distributed by the almoner so wine and bread would have been given to you and you'd be sent on your way so there was a good side to the abbey they certainly were more benevolent than some but it was also this gateway was designed to impress because they had some very very important indeed regal visitors and kings and queens of england visited the abbey right through from richard the first right through to henry the seventh who ironically enough is her son, of course, was responsible for dissolving the Abbey. But it shows how important the Abbey was at that period and the Shrine of Edmund continued to be that it attracted the kings and queens of England for several hundred years. And this Abbey would have been designed to impress upon the visitor that they weren't entering anywhere ordinary. This was a special, special place. And do we know much about what was here beyond this gate? I mean, are we going to go and have a look at some of the ruins? But in its heyday, do we have an idea of what this might have looked like when you come through the gate here? We do have an idea. Unfortunately, over the years, there have been some quite fanciful reconstructions. And one of the reconstructions is behind us, where we're standing now. And it tends to be a rather romantic view of what the precinct originally looked like. I mean, it was huge. It was something like 10 hectares, 25 acres in area. And it's often referred to as a town within a town. And there was poor little Berry, the town outside, carrying away in the shadow of the abbey. And of course the abbots were the people who laid out the town. It's a Norman planned town. And everybody in the town was completely beholden to the abbey and resentful of it. But it's a different world as you come through the Abbey Gate. Suddenly it's an area that is not necessarily quieter. <laughs> it is today, but not necessarily in the medieval period. It probably would have been quite busy, noisy, very active on this side of the Abbey because the precinct was essentially divided into two. This side, the north side, was the sort of secular side, if you like, the business side of things. And the southern side, south of the central spine, was the spiritual side. And that's where the pilgrims would have come in. So we can walk round and we can get some idea of what the precinct would have looked like in its heyday. We know, for example, that there were a whole series of outbuildings, rather like the timber buildings you'd find on the interior of a castle, lean-to buildings around the precinct wall. And there were stables and kennels and all the everyday buildings you'd expect to find in a busy establishment like this. There were also we know there was a brew house and we know there was a bake house so they were making their own beer weak beer or small beer as it was known 
because of course you couldn't drink the water. They were making their own bread. And we know this because there are records of what was destroyed in the riot of 1327, which included all of these buildings. So we know that was going on. So the Great Court, which is this sort of secular area, if you like, would have been quite busy and noisy at that time, very active, lots going on. And probably in quite stark contrast to the spiritual activities going on on the other side. When we go over and have a look at the Abbey Church, you can see some of the conventual buildings and the Abbey Church itself and the cloister and so on. And it has a rather different atmosphere. Today, the Great Court is now what we call the Abbey Gardens, which is an active park. The locals call it the park, but actually this is a huge magnet for visitors, two million a year or something like that. And therefore it's got a very tranquil, very manicured look to it today. But in the medieval period it would have been quite a busy sort of area. And we can see some of the remains of the buildings. We should go across and have a look. Many of the buildings were completely taken to level to the ground simply for the building material. Fortunately, in most areas, they were happy to simply take the valuable facing stones away and leave the mortar and rubble core. And, of course, that gives us an outline of where the original buildings were. OK, so... Let's go through them. Let's get out of this noisy yeah, traffic. Yeah. It feels a bit like that medieval hustle and bustle, really, <laughs> yeah, doesn't yeah, it? It's yeah, quite yeah, appropriate. Absolutely. But let's go through into what is now the public park. So this would all have been part of that sort of business side, as it were, then? Yeah, yeah this was what's known as a great court. And if, the, for example, there was a royal visitor in residence, they'd bring their retinue of perhaps 500 horse or something like that, and they would, of course, have to find somewhere to tether their horses, set up camp and so on. So it was always actively used. It was also presumably almost like a parade ground, if you like. Along one side, along the north side, were all these outbuildings, the very functional side of the abbey life and then on the far side on the eastern side that we're walking towards now would have been the apartment of state so you'd have had the abbot's palace for example you'd have had the royal residences where from time to time royal visitors would have to be accommodated and you'd have some of the grand at the prior's house and so on it was a mixture of the functional and the ceremonial Do we have any idea of how many people would have worked here? Are we talking hundreds of people? We don't have exact numbers. At Doomsday there were 120 monks recorded. We think there were about 80 monks at the height of the Abbey's activity, but probably as many lay brothers as well because obviously there were people who had to help out with all the manual work as well. And there may have been others employed from time to time within the Abbey, so there could at any one time have been a few hundred people working here. So it was a big business, considering the population of Bury St Edmunds at the time, it would have dwarfed. It would have certainly been the biggest, as it were, employer at the time. So we're coming up to some definite ruins of a building here. What's this that we're looking at? Well, this isn't usually known as the Queen's Chamber, but that's, I think, a slight misnomer. This was probably the Abbot's Palace originally. But we know that once the Abbey was dissolved, that some of the buildings continued in use, and this was one of them. And in 1588, Queen Elizabeth I, I mean, several years after the dissolution, did a royal progress around Suffolk, which included staying three nights in the Abbot's Palace. 
And I think, I suspect, that that's where it got the name the Queen's Chamber from. So it was originally seemed to have been the Abbot's Palace. Yeah, unfortunately, it's the only building that survives of that eastern range, the grand eastern range of buildings, the apartments that stood in that area originally. There are fragments at the north end, but they're not nearly as well preserved as this. And this in itself is not healthy as it might have been. The problem is, of course, that most of the ruins here, and we'll see examples in the Abbey Church, most of the buildings here were originally faced with dressed limestone, very finely worked, probably with limestone coming locally from Barnack, which is only just over Peterborough away. Some may be coming across from Normandy, from Caen and places like that. But it was all that material that people wanted when the abbey was dissolved. So when the buildings were demolished, very often what was left, the facing stones were stripped away and what was left was the mortar and the rubble core, which gives us an outline of the buildings that were there, an indication. But unfortunately, that core was never designed to be exposed to the elements and of course now it's a constant battle to conserve and keep them in one piece. And also it's got this like, odd appearance and is this local stone? This looks like it's, flint most it of it is, here. It's mostly flint and lime mortar and flint occurs, is very prolific locally, it's very very commonplace locally. It's about the only building stone that you get locally. If you want anything like limestone you have to go further afield to Barnack and places like that. So that explains why it's so often taken away then, I suppose, because it is quite rare. Yes, exactly. The facing stones are rare and a a precious commodity. And of course, as you know, in the Middle Ages, people recycled and recycled and recycled. Now, they weren't as profligate as we are with raw materials. And so there was no way they were going to go to waste. We don't know where they went, interestingly, because although you can see some of the facing stones reused on buildings in the town, nowhere near enough though to account for all the stone that would have come from the abbey buildings so there is i have heard it suggested that perhaps some of these facing stones came down the river lark on barges so that connects you to the great ooze and the wash and the coast in the same way possibly when the abbey was dissolved they may have carted the facing stone in the reverse direction by water and they could have ended up for example even in london So that's a really good point. And actually, the river is literally just behind us here, isn't it? So we can almost hear... It is. It is. It's right at the bottom. The abbey effectively sits on the terrace just above the river, which is, of course, a common location for medieval abbeys. And it did provide a a source of a means of transport. We believe that the sacrist's yard, a bit further down to the east, actually had a sort of wharf so that you could bring some boats with a low draft, a sort of barge you could probably bring down at some stages and offload heavy material like the facing stones. So that helps the sort of image of this as actually quite a busy and bustling and connected place, doesn't it, rather than just a sort of secluded, out-of-the-place monastery for monks to hide away yeah it was very much an outward facing business like it was in charge of a large agricultural estate it was very business like in its dealings which of course brought in a vast amount of wealth but it probably added to its unpopularity to be perfectly honest but yes it wasn't by any means the sort of contemplative space that you might imagine it was much more business like and much more active So shall we go and have a look at what's left of the actual abbey itself? Indeed, yes.
So we're looking at over loads of ruins, lots of different buildings and at the moment you might just sit here and have a nice little picnic and you sort of get a sense that you're in a little room and you were just telling me that this one here, especially lots of people in the summer come and sit here, they don't know what that is, do they? They don't and they sit there, it's a lovely green sward and you can spread your picnic out and let the kids run around and so on. But in fact this is the remains of what's known as the Necessarium, which you can probably work out what purpose that served for the monks. And the, the Necessarium was nearly always located close to the river so that the effluent could wash down to the river and wash away but it certainly would give a different perspective to your summer picnic if you knew what the building originally was yes exactly so you were in fact sitting in a medieval toilet indeed (laughs) excellent let's move on Hi everyone, I'm Jimmy Doherty, TV presenter, farmer and conservationist. I've got a brand new podcast where we discuss all things green, from nature to recycling, to foraging, to potty training cows. Yeah, I'm not joking, apparently it helps with pollution. Each week you'll be hearing from some recognisable faces off the telly and eco-experts who will tell us how they try and sometimes fail to live a greener life. People like the founder of the Eden Project, Sir Tim Smith. It is only people who don't know what they're doing that can do marvellous things in some areas because received wisdom will sometimes, you'll talk yourself out of it if you've got lots of people who've done it before. Ecopreneur Ashita Cabri-Davies on why renting our clothes might be the future. You know, you might feel great about yourself because you did a wardrobe clear out and you donated things to charity shops, but 90% of those donations are completely worthless and they're sent to landfills in Asian and African countries. And my old pal Jamie Oliver on how to eat in season. I think I was stupid enough, naive enough, and unspoilt enough about the world that we live in. Tune in to On Jimmy's Farm from History Hit. Follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors, and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, wow. Okay, so, Adrian, so looking at some really quite spectacular ruins. Tell me where you've taken me now. Well, we're standing next to the chapter house. And the chapter house was a very important 
building in any monastic house. Effectively, the chapter house was a sort of boardroom, if you like. Every morning, the abbot and the monks would meet in convent here. They would first of all listen to a chapter of the Rule of Benedict to give them their, as it were, their moral compass for the day. And that's how the name chapter house arose. So the abbot would sit at one end and the monks would sit on stone benches around either side and they'd go through the business of the day. So they'd say which important visitors were coming, who was doing what job. If anyone had broken the rules, they'd decide on the punishment. So it was a sort of court, as it were, at the same time. And then everybody would go on their way and do the jobs of the day. It's a slightly sorry sight because those of you who have seen chapter houses around the country, Durham and Worcester and Ely and places like that, will be used to seeing something that's a bit more grandiose than this. It does appear to have suffered particularly from Henry VIII's commissioners. Maybe they saw it as symbolic of the wealth of the Abbey, I don't know. The treasury was right next door and it was the kind of fiscal heart of the Abbey, so maybe that's why it suffered so much. However, it did have some secrets to give up. And the antiquarian and ghostwriter M.R. James, who was brought up locally and was always hugely interested in the Abbey of St Edmund, he came across an abbey register in Douai in France in the 1890s, which made reference to the location of some of the abbot's graves. So he came back to Bury and he organised an archaeological dig in the floor of the chapter house because the record suggested that several of the abbots were buried in the floor. And they duly dug some trenches across the floor and they found the graves of six abbots, five of whom were in coffins and they were actually identifiable by some of the goods that were survived in their graves. Oh, wow. And then it was possible to identify all of them. So although they were dug up, the original grave slabs were destroyed or lost the replacements were put in this was in 1903 so it's very much uh, that sort of vintage they were replaced and each of the grave slabs has the name of the abbot the dates of their abbacy and so on and they're replaced in their original positions so that's what we're looking at now we're looking at these grave slabs yes. in the floor in the middle of the chapter house a whole row of them yes fantastic uh, yes. and what sort of date Well, they're right the way through, mostly in the earlier period. I mean, the most significant one, I suppose, the most famous of the abbots who's buried, whose grave was found during the excavations, was Abbot Samson. Now, Samson had, shall we say, a very mixed reputation. On the one hand, he was a very assiduous builder. He was one of the builder abbots here, and he was responsible for much of the west front of the Abbey Church, for example. And he was also, it was during his abbacy that Jocelyn of Brackland, one of the monks, produced a well-known chronicle. And it's almost a unique document that is still in print today, telling you the daily life, describing the daily life of the abbey during the abbacy of Samson. And it's quite interesting from a personal perspective because it's a lot about not just about the business of the abbey but it's about the rivalries and the competition between the various officers the obedientries and so on and it's quite an insight into human character at the time you know much the same as we'd get in any institution today but Jocelyn was very much a fan a very much an advocate and admirer of Samson but Samson although he did many good things he was also probably the man responsible reputedly the man responsible for the massacre of the Jewish population of Bury in 1190 the on Palm Sunday in that year the townsfolk turned on the Jewish population there was always 
tension between the two, but particularly focused, of course, at Easter, they attacked and chased the local Jews down to the abbey. And so the story goes, they sought sanctuary in the abbey and Samson allegedly said, this is not the king's abbey and these are not St Edmund's men and closed the gates against them. And 57 men, women and children were massacred outside the gates of the abbey. So Samson has a lot to answer for and in the abbey gardens here today we've got a Holocaust memorial garden which records the massacre of various Jewish population in 1119. So that's quite an important part of the story that that needs to be told as well. Perhaps not the traditional story that people would get from visiting the site. No, absolutely. It's something that perhaps people are unaware of and we make sure, we try and make sure that people are aware of that, that there was a dark side to the Abbey. It wasn't a wholly benevolent institution and that some of the anti-Semitism that was pretty well endemic to medieval England was apparent in Bury St Edmunds as well as everywhere else. And interestingly enough, the massacre in Bury took place, I think, a matter of two days after this mass suicide that took place in York, the infamous deaths in Clifford's Tower in York. So it was almost like a copycat crime, if you like. OK, so now we've moved on, we walked around, I can see a little sign saying North Transept over there, but what exactly am I looking at, these vast big structures here? Well, we're looking at the ruinous remains of the North Transept and its flanking chapels on the east side and this is a very well-known local site for both residents and visitors the way that the north wall of the north transept has been eroded some of it has survived and it is it's created what's locally known as the chicken and the kettle and when you look at them carefully you can see you can see a kettle or a teapot on the left hand side and you can see a chicken on the right and when we have our american visitors we have to say we call these the coffee pot and the rooster of course. <laughs> I can see that. This is, yeah, definitely the sort of thing you have to come down here and have a look, see if you can find the kettle and the chicken. <laughs> and the chicken, absolutely. <laughs> so we're standing at the crossing. That's to say the point at which, at the intersection between the nave, the east-west nave, and the north and south transepts. The church itself, the Abbey Church, was one of the largest churches in northwestern Europe. At one point it was bigger than St Peter's in Rome. It was that spectacular. It was about 150 metres long and if you stand at the crossing here you can see we're close to the eastern end but the western end is barely visible behind us and we'll go and see the western front a bit later on. But it was about 150 metres long which would have placed it certainly significantly longer than Norwich Cathedral and that was highly important because the abbot and the Bishop of Norwich and indeed the Bishop of Ely were in constant competition with each other. And the fact that you could boast that you had a bigger church than anyone else's was a huge, <laughs> a huge uh, brownie point for you. It was a point of status. So there was something about that. It was about showing off and about status. But it was also about inspiring awe in the eyes of the pilgrims who had made a journey sometimes that had taken weeks to get here. It's difficult to imagine this space that we're standing in as it would have looked like in the medieval period. There were four surviving piers forming this great crossing here, some of which survived to quite a height, and you can see the beginning of a springing arch coming over 
to one side. And recent research, current research being carried out by English Heritage is beginning to piece together what this tower, this central tower might have looked like. Because the Abbey Church had two towers. It had this central one we're standing in and it had the great western tower. What the research seems to be showing is that originally perhaps this tower was something like 20 metres high to the clear stories, so there was a triforium and a clear story above that, but then that was only part of the story because above that you'd have the roof space of the nave, above that you would have the ringing chamber and above that the bell chamber, and above that would probably have been a steeple. So on top of that 20-odd metres, you might have another 15, 20 metres above that. So if you had a structure that was 40 metres high, that would have been a tremendous statement in the landscape. It would have been visible for miles around, but not just in the landscape, also in the townscape, because it would have dwarfed any other building in the medieval period. The buildings we see in Bury today, some of the buildings from the Georgian period and later, obviously much taller than anything that would have existed in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, you'd have had a single story or at most a two-story building, and this church would have stood out monumentally in the townscape. So again, it was about status, it was about a statement about how significant, not just spiritually but temporarily and in terms of its power how it reflected the status of the church as well as its spiritual power. And do we know where the money comes from to build something like that? The money came from a number of sources. First of all of course you had pilgrims coming through here and the pilgrims would process along one of the aisles and they'd go down to the the shrine of Edmund and we'll have a look at that in a moment. They'd process around it they'd have their moment of eternity where they prayed to Edmund and they would crucially of course make a contribution before they were ushered out through the South Isle. So there was a constant stream of money coming from the pilgrims and some of them would not just contribute here but they would contribute around the town, they would stay in local lodgings, the rents from those came to the abbey so there was a huge business around the pilgrimage aspect of the abbey church but also of course it was a big landowner it owned woodlands, farmlands and estates, not just in West Suffolk, but further afield. So there was all that money coming in. They also had, for example, they had a corn mill on the site. And if you were producing corn, there was what they called a suit of mill, so that you had to grind your corn there and you would give 10% to the abbot, to the privilege of that. So there are all sorts of revenue streams coming in, particularly from the town because the town belonged to the abbey and all the rents and all the dues and all the taxes came flooding into the exchequer. So it was a hugely wealthy establishment. But let's just, I just wanted to get back to Edmund, sort of one of the reasons why it's all here, or St Edmund. Where exactly was that shrine then of his? The shrine of Edmund was originally in a circular what's known as a rotunda, a circular church or chapel just outside the Abbey Church. But as soon as the east end of the Abbey was completed, his body was moved to the eastern end of the Abbey Church, to the chancel. What we're looking at 
from here is we're looking into the crypt which has been excavated in the last century but if we're actually standing on the medieval ground surface and if you project that out a few yards away from us would have been the high altar and then behind that in traditional style you would have had the shrine of Edmund and it was quite a spectacular shrine it was raised on a stone pediment perhaps so that it was visible from the rest of the church, from the nave. And on top of that, the shrine itself was covered in gold and silver and encrusted with precious jewels. It would have been a fabulous sight for pilgrims who'd come all this way to see it. And the commissioners who had the task of demolishing it referred to it being very cumbrous to deface. So they had to get their hammers and chisels out to actually take the thing apart. So that must have been quite a place to come to as a pilgrim to visit. I think it was. I think if you'd made the effort to come all this way, either you'd walked or you'd come on horseback or whatever, it was a great privation to come here and to eventually find yourself confronted by the shrine would have been a life-changing moment for you, without a doubt. It was unfortunately also a life-changing moment because when, in times of plague, when you got this collecting together a vast amounts of people it was a terribly effective way of spreading plague as well so some people ironically who came here to pray for good health ended up very far from in good health so that idea so we're now in the pandemic still and we all know about social distancing and places closing down so that sounds like a very familiar story for us really doesn't it it does it certainly chimes with our recent troubles and the fact that Edmund was actually one of his attributes was he was a plague saint he was a saint who was particularly noted for his power to withhold and to protect against the plague ironically of course as I say it was at his shrine that some of the plague was occasionally transmitted ah yes that's a a bit of an issue Right, so you've taken me outside and now we're actually looking at the man himself. This is Edmund, is it? Yes, this is a bronze statue of St Edmund, depicted as a young and quite vulnerable-looking Christian, as he was. He, of course, was martyred for refusing to renounce his Christianity. This sculpture is actually by Dame Elizabeth Frink, who, as well as being a world-famous sculptress, was a local girl as well. So it was unveiled in the 1970s, and I have only one criticism, and that is that it's a very good visual aid on Angel Hill, if only we could move him down the road. But he's he's a wonderful, I think, a very stirring symbol of not just him as a martyr, but him as a human, as a person. He's standing in front, and what we're looking at behind Edmund is the west front of the great Abbey Church. And again, it's very difficult. You have to use your powers of imagination to visualise what this would have looked like in the medieval period. The whole of this area has been raised by about a metre and a half because it was so boggy here. So it would have had greater height, as it were, originally. But we can see before us this rather odd mosaic of old walls and new houses and the new houses are 18th century houses built into the rear facade western front of the abbey church 
So if you look very carefully, if one looks carefully, it's possible to see the three archways of the central nave aisle, the central doorway into the nave, and the north and the south aisles on either side. If you're a pilgrim, you go in the north aisle, you go down to the shrine, all that distance that we've just walked to the far end, and then you'd come back and you'd come back out the south aisle here. If you were a crowned prince, you would go through the central nave. We know at least the central doorway, if not all three, were covered in beaten bronze. So the sight that would have met you as a pilgrim would have been absolutely astonishing, breathtaking. We don't know how high it was, this facade. We know, obviously, we've got the same problem here, that all the facing stones have been taken away, so we're seeing the rubble core into which these houses rather incongruously have been inserted. But we suspect, and certainly the work, the research that English Heritage are currently doing, suggests that this might have been originally perhaps 40 metres high matching the central tower. So the Great Western Tower, a bit like Peterborough or Ely or a place like that. So it might have been that sort of scale. So it would be an incredible sight to pilgrims. And then if we turn round, swing round and look in the opposite direction, we're looking at the Pilgrim's Way. Churchgate Street, as it's now called, would have come straight down towards us. And this is known as the Norman Tower. And this originally was one of the two towers its counterpart was destroyed but this one is a wonderful survival of romanesque architecture dating to the second quarter of the 12th century and it's a fabulous surviving piece of architecture it was heavily restored in the 1840s but it had to be because it was the bell tower of what is now the cathedral what was then st james's church it's often known as St James's Tower. And, of course, the action of all the bells, 12 or 13 bells being rung here every, every day, would have had a huge and damaging effect and was having a damaging effect on the foundation. So all of that work had to be done. Otherwise, we would not have that building we have today. It was over-restored, as the Victorians used to do, but, thank goodness, they did. So what we've got is really an outstanding example of Norman Romanesque architecture. And there's one more thing we were going to look at before I go now. So where are you taking me now? We're in the middle of the great churchyard and the building we're looking at now is the Chapel of the Charnel, which was originally a two-storey chapel built about 1300. And there was a monk, or a priest I should say, permanently here to tend to the mortal remains of those people who were dug up from the great churchyard because, of course, over the centuries you get more and more burials and every time you put in a new burial, you're disturbing an older one. And rather than throw away the bones, it was thought reverent to treat them with respect and to bring them to a house like this. And they were kept here rather like an ossuary. You see a lot of ossuaries in Mediterranean countries, for example and the bones would be kept here respectfully. It was believed that, in fact, you only had to keep two of the long bones and a skull to ensure the resurrection of the soul. And that was and enough for us, so that was little enough. bones weren't so important. No, that's right. You just It was a sort of token. And it's, some people believe that that was the origin of the skull and crossbones symbol. Ah, I see. So what we see today is... Uh, the remains of the charnel house and it's quite a rarity it's a quite rare survival in this country but set into the walls of it are some of the grave memorials that have been saved from elsewhere across the graveyard 
And so does this still have the bones inside it? It hasn't, no, because there was briefly became a shop and a tavern, yes. <laughs> and a tavern. And okay. a tavern, yes. Nothing was wasted. And there was an archaeological, well, I say an archaeological, there was a speculative bit of digging went on inside it. And I think since then all the bones and so on have been cleared away and who knows where. Right, so maybe they're here for us to, to discover one day. Uh, quite possibly. Yeah. I think if you'd stuck a spade in anywhere where we're standing here, you would find a lot of human remains. Yeah, I can imagine. Adrian, that's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you. I wish we could talk all day and that everyone could come with us, but I think they definitely should visit. Now, you mentioned right at the start that that there was an anniversary that was sort of slightly delayed because of COVID, but you've got lots of things planned for the summer. Is that right? That's right. Through the whole of the summer, we're going to have spectacles of light. We're going to have pilgrimages, concerts, events in the park. And, of course, the tour guides are going to put on six special tours, Abbey tours. So there'll be lots to see in Bowes and Edmonds this summer. So everybody must rush down and enjoy it. Fantastic. So, yeah, if you've enjoyed listening to this and you want to actually see these things for yourself when it's a little bit warmer, we're freezing here today, do have a look. I'm sure people can find it online if they search for events in Bury St Edmunds. I'm sure they'll all come up. And Abbey Thousand, if they go on to Abbey Thousand, they'll find everything they need to know. Fantastic. Adrian, thank you so much. This has been brilliant. My pleasure. Thanks for coming. That brings us to the end of this episode. I really enjoyed that tour. I hope you did too. And that if you do get an opportunity that you make a trip yourself to Bury St Edmunds, perhaps next summer. This has been an episode of Gone Medieval by History Ahead. If you want more medieval information in your life, do subscribe to our newsletter. Just look at the episode uh, details, the episode notes, wherever you get this podcast from, and you can find out how. Also, please do subscribe and leave us a review if you enjoy listening because it really helps other listeners find the podcast. So great help to us, which means we can bring you more podcasts in the future. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman and I will be back with you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.